Hi, and welcome to Integrative Cancer Solutions with Dr. Carl Felt. A cancer diagnosis is one of the hardest slap in the face imaginable. All of a sudden, you have to become an expert in cancer and its treatments because your life depends on it. Oncologists, family and friends are pushing you towards chemo, radiation, surgery, yet you feel there are additional solutions out there. You don't feel confident in that only traditional therapies will take care of it. You may, as I have, seen family or friends quickly go downhill from harsh medical treatments. There is a better way. I invite you to listen to stories from real people fighting cancer successfully through powerful, integrative, and holistic methods. Learn what they did. This is my gift to you to make the learning curve less steep after your diagnosis. The information this podcast could save your life as it has others. Maggie and Brad Jones, I'm so excited to have you guys on this segment of the uh, Integrative Cancer Solution with Dr. Carl Bell. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Oh, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. It, it's, I mean, there, there are a number of things we're going to be chatting about, but I, I first, I'd like to really kind of dive into your cancer journey, Maggie. I mean, tell me a little bit, you know, yeah, tell me about that journey. I mean, what what <laughs> what, what happened? I mean, all of a sudden, obviously, you're, you're, you know, was it symptoms that were showing up or was it just a routine test or, you know, what started to happen that made you concerned? So it all goes back to just before my 40th birthday when Brad and I were planning a move from our home in Los Angeles to Hong Kong. <laughs> and we'd never been to Asia, certainly never to Hong Kong before. <laughs> But I previously had a very stressful job, like many Westerners do, and I dealt with it by my alcohol enthusiasm. I thought I was eating a healthy diet. I thought I was doing everything right. But my priorities were really on Western uh, standards of success. I wanted to do well in my career, take care of my family, all of that. And so I tended to ignore whatever symptoms were coming up. And I continued ignoring them, especially up to this move into Hong Kong, because I just had too much to do. But it was, I, we arrived the week before my 40th birthday, and it was exactly one month later that they had become more than I could ignore. So previously, I'd had symptoms like a heavy cough the year before that I now recognize as the death rattle cough of my lung cancer. I've had huge swellings in my neck and those lymph nodes that I couldn't even raise my hands without discomfort. And I thought, oh, just getting fat. And so all these little things I could ignore. But finally, I committed yeah. to Brad. Not, she hasn't told me about any of this, like <laughs> just got going through her life, right? But I did uh, admit to him ultimately that I was going blind in my right eye. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't see anything. And that weekend, he's like, you have to see a doctor. <laughs> yeah, she told me on Saturday, I'm like, we're going to the doctor tomorrow. So yeah. And it turned out I, that the I, only... I can't raise my arms. I'm going blind. <laughs> and I got a cough. You know, some, <laughs> my brain wasn't working on. the way I was used yeah. to. I'm getting old. But yeah, he said, we have to go see an eye doctor tomorrow. The only ophthalmologist that was open in Hong Kong at the time happened to be at one of the best hospitals there, uh, Adventist. But so we went on a, or I went on a Sunday, uh, the ophthalmologist took one look in my eye and said, we're ordering an emergency MRI. I came back the next day uh, and he made us wait all day. Yeah. And I realized it was because he didn't want to be the one, this eye doctor to tell me I was going to die because the MRI had shown not just the two uh, uh tumors in my retina, but also tumors in my brain. And we knew from my cough, we should come back that it was probably a uh, primary lung cancer tumor. And of course, the PET CT later on showed that that was correct. That I had a biopsy of the lymph nodes in my neck. And for those who don't know, at the time, the prognosis was pretty dire. The standard at the time median survival for a diagnosis of lung cancer spread to the brain was six to eight months with conventional treatments. And at the time I was very much into allopathic medicine. I'm like, sure, I'll do all your conventional treatments, whatever you want. Of course, these are palliative. They were never meant to cure my cancer. I was incurable, inoperable, terminal with just less than a year to live. And at that period, well, the first couple of days were pretty tough, but it, then I was diagnosed on that Monday. And by that weekend, I was reading my cancer books. I was reading about things like radical emissions and a radical diet change and how lifestyle can end, impact 
your cancer and it's not your DNA isn't your destiny. And I started to internalize these concepts and you know, we we're living in Hong Kong. We were away from our family and our traditional environment. So I got to really explore and go outside what I felt like I could do with my op locations. I had a wonderful caregiver. And spoiler alert, if you hadn't figured it out, I didn't die <laughs> within the year. Uh, actually, by my one-year scans, I was no evidence of disease. And I continue to have some problems with my treatment, especially the uh, radiation surgery. I have something called aphasia from the four necrotic legions in my brain. And that's why you'll hear me struggle over my words sometimes. And that's why I'm very lucky to have my husband Brad here <laughs> to help me out when I do I, I don't think she's having any trouble today. She's doing fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's harder than it looks. <laughs> this talking thing. <laughs> you, you do, you're doing amazing. I mean, that, that's amazing. So I'm so tell, tell me a little bit more kind of the journey, what happened throughout, I mean, the, the treatments, how it impacted you, and, uh, and, and also when you started, so you read these books, Radical Remission, and all these kind of self-help books and cancer books, and so when did you start to kind of implement them, and why did you start to implement them, and why did you feel that this versus that because there's so much stuff out there that you can read yeah so why did something uh, that you implemented why did that speak to you so it all started again that first weekend after my diagnosis less than a week later Brad took me out and i had time to actually start reading and start considering what was happening to me i felt myself going through the stages of grief, specifically bargaining with God that if I didn't die of cancer, I would never pee in a pool again. <laughs> I would never pee in the gym shower. <laughs> I don't know anything. Uh, but ultimately it came down to faith in myself. I just know that whatever I decide, I'll see through. I personally, well, now I don't have a lot of fear of death, but I love life so much. And I just wanted to enjoy as much time as I could with Brad, my family, this beautiful world that it started to make me think that, okay, fewer than 1% of people survive this prognosis more than five years, but those people tend to be older. They tend to maybe not have as much hope as I do. I have a chance. And that little chance is all I needed. And for me, it all starts with the research, with allopathic medicine. Again, I started very, very Westernized. <laughs> Yeah, you're kind of rushed into radiotherapy almost straight away. Yeah, at first I was going to do anything the doctors told me. Like I, when I first heard about the tumor in my eye, I was like, I have two eyes. Just, just cut it out. It's all done. Um, I'm very lucky I was inoperable or we would have cut down everything. But I was lucky to have a genetic mutation that didn't make it me able to use uh, a type of targeted chemotherapy that wasn't as devastating to the body. It was pretty devastating. And then as Brad mentioned, more on radio. that in a minute, actually, yeah. <laughs> radiotherapy. Yeah. Uh, but back to what I really feel caused my healing, because again, those treatments were all just palliative. It started with a radical diet change. And this was the very first weekend. It was actually that Sunday that I put aside, we ordered some room service some coffee with cream. And I was like, wait, I'm going to try fasting. I learned a little bit about it. And I started right then my first 24 hour fast, which seems so small now, but at the time was a big shift for me. And then I decided after that, I wasn't going to put anything into my body that I didn't know was going to actively heal it. Something that was going to make my cancer cells weaker and my healthy cells stronger. And that included cutting out all alcohol, Oh my gosh, Dr. Michael, I'm so glad I wasn't an alcoholic because I wasn't sure. <laughs> but when I decided not to drink, it was no problem. It meant for me uh, cutting out things like dairy, which is intended to help grow animals. And I have a disease of unregulated growth. I didn't need any help growing. And then really focusing on the research with around the time was focused on plants and looking at plants and what do I know is going to either improve my inflammation, can actively kill cancer cells in a petri dish. Um, there's one other criteria I had that ended up sending Brad running through the streets of Hong Kong <laughs> searching for what was acceptable to me. Yeah, it was just a little harder to find organic groceries there. And um, um, certainly it was hard to find like any kind of grass fed um, meat or anything like that. So I, in fact, we didn't even eat grass fed meat at that point. No, so I ended up going completely yeah. plant-based and it's yeah. a little different from vegan plant-based. I had about five to 10% of my calories coming from animal food. 
And those animal foods were organic pasture-aged eggs and some wild fatty caught uh, like, wild caught like fish. salmon. Yeah. Exactly. But I found I could only do this on weekends because it tended to spike my blood glucose. And one of the outcomes of my reading and my research was how your blood sugar, how foot sugar in general actually feed your cancer cells. And this is something that we've known for over a hundred years. And anyone out there who's known somebody with cancer, we know that the definitive diagnostic treatment is a PET scan. And a PET scan is where they insert a glucose monitor molecule attached to a radioactive tracer into your body because all that glucose goes straight to the cancer tumors and then they can image them easily with that tracer and so it's just so obvious that yes glucose feeds your tumors and so it was from then on i had nothing nothing that my body could really convert to glucose easily and that meant no greens for me like i said no dairy even the cutting down fruit to just some some berries and people ask, well, my gosh, what did you eat? I ate a lot of vegetables and it was magical. And a lot of fats. I uh, took advantage of avocados and uh, sauerkraut. I remember a lot of sauerkraut. Yeah, yes, that's a vegetable. Cab- cabbage. <laughs> Fermented yeah, foods. a lot of cabbage. Yeah. Uh, because fat, we also know when you're not filling your body with sugars, can be converted into ketones. And this brings about that healing ketogenic state in your body that's very anti-inflammatory we're learning now that ketones are used for signaling agents not just for fueling your body but every cell in your body loves the ketones uh and only except cancer (laughs) if you have there it can't use it it cannot oxidize this fuel and so that was a very important way of eating for me i tracked my blood sugar my blood glucose every single day and it got better and better up until that year before my healing. Yeah. And if you want to hear more. <laughs> I, well, yeah. I was, I was just saying, like this, she has this story of when she fasted for one radiotherapy and then the previous one she hadn't fasted for. I feel like that's like an amazing okay, yeah. story. So I have had two rounds of stereotactic radiostructure. Each were for two different tumors in my brain, each done at the same hospital, the same uh, radiotherapist. Uh, The first time I went in, it was devastating. The next three weeks, I was on the couch, just vomiting, sweating, clamming, couldn't eat anything. Uh, And then it was five months later, I had the second when two new tumors had popped up. And I fasted, having read Dr. Bolzer Longo's research out of USC, three days, just a water fast, three days before the surgery up to about a day after. But I'll tell you, it's an impaced operation. And I walked home that Friday, the Friday of the this procedure, and I was back at work up Monday and I felt great. So fasting ended up playing a really big role and still does in my life and my healing. Um, we ended up yeah. fasting every Monday, Mm-hmm. just not eating anything. So our only meals would be Sunday night to Tuesday night. We did OMAD known as one meal a day for the rest of the week. And then on weekends, we'd have two meals. <laughs> it was crazy. And so this was the beginning of my, my nutritional, my food therapies, but there's a lot more I'd love to talk about later. There's some of the stress reduction, the exercise, it, it goes on and on, but I do want to pause. <laughs> well, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, this is, this is amazing. It's incredible. So, you know, a, a lot of people that like, so it, it, I assume you 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 kind of, you jumped into ketogenic, but you did that also with almost like a plant-based diet, which is very hard for a lot of people. So do you mind, do you mind just kind of giving a view for people? You mentioned some food that you ate a view for people to understand what that would look like. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what, what are, what did the meals look like to be able to achieve what you were achieving? I would love to. And I always preface this by saying, you know, as you know, a ketogenic state is different than the diet that you use to get into it. A ketogenic state is that healing state of having ketones in your body. You can achieve it with fasting, with carnivore, or my taste with the plant-based diet was what resonated so strongly with me. And I chose this partly because of my background. I was born and raised a vegetarian. I wasn't really prepared to start eating all the meat that one would associate with uh, a ketogenic diet. It was also a little bit of yeah, you know, it as non-harming. Not, and it was mostly around the research. At the time, all I could get my hands on is 
the carcinogenic qualities of a meat diet. And I understand now we aren't differentiating in those studies, whether it's factory farmed meat or actually naturally grown meat, you know, treated humanely and all that. But certainly in Hong Kong, I wasn't going to get the latter anyway. So it was no problem to understand uh, plant-based was the way to go. And my diet, like I mentioned, it was mostly built around vegetables, a ton of cruciferous vegetables like um, broccoli, cauliflower, kale, broccoli sprouts, all these things that have been proven to have a really powerful impact against cancer through the mechanism of sulforaphane. Uh, but then other vegetables that were pretty low carb, you know, anything growing above the ground, avoiding any kind of legumes, uh, wheat, uh, tubers, maybe I'd sometimes have half a carrot, but it was really based around what my, my blood test could bear. Again, I tested my ketone level and my blood level twice every day just to make sure. And I don't have to do that anymore. I know how foods affect me now, but at the time it was just an exploration process. And you mentioned that it can be hard and it was very hard in the beginning. I love bread. I love pizza. My favorite food I used to say was sandwiches because it's just a vessel for the bread. But I remember walking home from the shovel stop one time on my way home, passing this pizza place where I had stopped previously and thinking, if I just get a slice, nobody will know I can have the cheese and the bread. I thought, wait, first I would know. My cancer cells would definitely know my blood test. You can't cheat a blood test. And why on earth at this point in my struggling to survive would I make my cancer cells stronger and my healthy cells weaker? And that was really my last temptation. And from then on, I thought if I could never eat again in my life, but still thrive <laughs> and be able to be there for my family, that's what I was going to do. And it was around the mooncake season in uh, Hong Kong that it again became hard because everybody comes and gives you their sweet treats and it's a little disrespectful not to enjoy them. But I explained to people that this is my cancer treatment. Metabolic therapy is a cancer therapy. And anybody who doesn't want me to do my cancer treatment, they're not thinking in my best interest. And I'm not somebody that I have to please. And yeah. the people who do care about me, they want me to be able to treat myself and have a good outcome. Yeah. I was going to say, what did we do to sort of keep the fat level up? So a, a ton of fat, uh, coconut oil, just the best, uh, avocados, as I mentioned. I will say I never eat uh, seed oils. I did at the time have some flaxseed oil because there's some good research around that, omega-3s. Uh, but really, it was just coconut oil at the wazoo, some uh, coconuts, avocados. What else was really fatty? Yeah, well, oh, we did MCT oil, or yeah. I did it in my coffee to use it. Yeah, and yeah. seeds, things like, you know, the Flackers is the brand name of a little, you know, flaxseed cracker we used to import from the U.S. So I, oh, chia seeds, of course. I actually have a website now, and I want to emphasize that vegan keto or plant-based keto is not the right way to eat for anybody. It's obviously not a balanced diet. Uh, the same way I wouldn't recommend chemo to a stranger. I wouldn't recommend this way of eating unless you know what you're doing. But I do have a website to, with resources if this is the way that you've determined with your practitioner to, to eat that has some meal plans, some recipes. I was a recipe blogger in my past just to show that this way of eating can also be really fun and kind of delicious. Yeah. And really the only thing you can't eat on this diet is you can't eat yeah, out. Tahini like dressing and there was like a avocado or I'm sorry not avocado um the almond butter um yes. and uh you know like sort of spicy sauce like that that sort of Asian spicy sauce that we would make and put on broccoli I mean with almond butter because we didn't eat peanuts legumes <laughs> yeah I mean yeah I would I'd be like make a double batch of that and I would just eat it all weekend yeah yeah so, but nuts yeah. and seeds and I found that by not eating any processed food. I could eat up to 30, even 35 grams of net carbohydrates per day and not have it impact my, my glucose level. So that's something that's different for everybody. Also, some people thrive on the vegetables and don't see a huge spike in uh, blood sugar. Other people like me will see a spike with just animal meats. Yeah, and so it's all about testing. I say all car, all, they would are all complex carbs, right? Like, like test. That's all. Yeah. I don't think we can make any kind of, blanket statement for all of humans. The only thing I would say is absolutely sue for everybody is nobody needs more sugar or more processed food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and I think that's a really important point is that like like you're you're repeating several times and I, it's worth repeating again, is that each individual is different. And so you have certain guidelines as to what is good and what is not good. But within those guidelines, you still have to refine it to fit you, your individual makeup. And the only way to do that is by learning through continual testing of, like you did, glucose, ketones, and seeing how your body's responding to different food combinations and, uh, and, and that it, that becomes the key. And after you, like you did, after you learn how your body responds, then obviously you don't have to be as meticulous about testing anymore. Exactly. And I do recommend, I didn't have this option in Hong Kong, but if anybody can work with an understanding practitioner like you and the folks at the Carl Feld Center, that's the way to do it. Because again, it's an unbalanced way of eating. I developed several deficiencies, carminotine, uh, iron, things like that. And having a professional to guide you is the very best way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And having resources like yourself. So where did they find all these recipes? <laughs> all right, so I haven't updated as often as I should with my other project, but it's cancerv.me. So cancerv.me? Dot me, yes. Okay, so V as in vegan. V is <laughs> in versus. And between versus. Okay. cancer versus me, I've won so far. <laughs> oh, so cool. I love it. <laughs> Although I don't even like to think about the cancer versus me as a battle because I've realized that the cancer cells inside me, they're my cells too. And they've been trying to tell me, and they were trying to tell me for years that the way I was living was not the best way for my body. And I'm really these days so grateful for my cancer and that it's always there to remind me to treat myself well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah, exactly. The, yeah. The cancer Cancer is, is just natural processes that had to kick in due to our own abuse of our, our poor little cells. And they were saying, hey, we can't do this anymore. We got to do something different. And I do believe that everyone has a little cancer inside them. You, Brad, I just wasn't treating myself well and I let it get totally out of control. And I think with some of these you know, lifestyle treatments that we're talking about, people can avoid that and they can learn that even though it's so socialized or acceptable to eat this poison it shouldn't be <laughs> and you can do better for your yeah. own health before it gets to stage four That's... for me i needed stage four or i never would have done it <laughs> it is the hardest thing everyone we talk to it's yeah it's like trying to do this as a preventative measure it, it's hard like the way that the human mind works it's like you don't really do make a big change until you're kind of forced to it's very interesting and and also another other thing that I want to just kind of highlight, I mean, you, you, you mentioned that you're enjoying each day. I mean, you're appreciating each day. You kind of let go of that fear of, of death, it seems like. You know, how, how did you get to that state? Because that, that is really hard. So I realized an introspection that I think the reason I got cancer in the first place was my stress. And it could possibly be I medicated it with alcohol, with food, with just staying up and doing even more. But the very brute for me personally was the stressful life I was living. And I was on medication to handle my anxiety. I found out after I started my chemo that I couldn't be on that medication and I realized I have to do something else. And so being the researcher I am, I went to the literature and I learned about mindfulness-based stress reduction. It's like, well, let's give this a try. I'd actually meditated as a child. Uh, I rebelled against it to go into my really wacky materialist world. And I was like, I'm, I'm ready to go back because again, I'm desperate. And it just so happened that the building that my office was in had just opened a yoga and healing arts clinic. And so I joined that. I was able to take just the elevator five floors down every day during lunch, take a yoga class. Brad joined me in the meditation and the MBSR classes because I never would have done it on my own. I tried and, and I failed. And it was very slow process. It really was. I wasn't like cured overnight. But over that time and being willing to give the time every day to meditation, to yoga and other stress uh, relieving techniques, it could be exercise for you, for prayer for others. I, I experimented with everything. I was reading a bet on tapping when then God, the next day I figured something else out. Cause I'm like, this doesn't resonate with me, but it could for others. There's so many modalities out there. 
talk therapy, Reiki. I could go on and on. Yeah, TRE. TRE uh, was a good one for me. Uh, And so I got more and more into the ones that did resonate with me. I'm now a a yoga instructor. I went on a lot of these 10-day silent meditation retreats, things like that. And it's, it's brought me to understand who I am versus who my body is and what the thoughts are. And again, I, I'm not proselytizing. I know I have like my own wacky personal belief system now, but I'm not afraid of dying. I think it's part of life. And I think it, the next thing could be really fun, but for sure it's going to happen either way. So I'm going to focus on this current thing, which is super fun and the people that I love. And it used to be, I was living this life of just trying to get everything over with so I could be happy. You know, let's finish the dishes and watch TV. Let's finish the week and enjoy the weekend, whatever it is. And that was so dumb when you have nothing to look forward to. It's like, let's enjoy right now. Let me enjoy doing the dishes. I was thinking about this with you yesterday. We were washing the dishes together. It's like the warm water on my hands and all of this. It's just magic on its own. I don't need a weekend. (laughs) I was just going to add Maggie kind of alludes to it but it's not like there was just a, a flip a switch flip like this is like a very long process of like you know sort of discovering herself I mean I think, think continually it, yeah I think it's I'm a some, mess you guys still yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just yeah sometimes I feel like it's like we could uh, come across of like oh you just have to decide to do this it's like no 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 this is really it's difficult it's continuing you know it's um um and uh yeah I mean finding support is helpful and um just, I'm just really proud of you. Yeah. And being willing to prioritize it. That's the hardest part because in a lot of Western society, that's not, you can't say, yeah, I got a full night's sleep tonight and have everybody be, you know, he says, oh, I only got four hours so I could work on this project and things like that. But when it really, really matters and you really need an excuse, candor was just the best for me to say, nope, I'm going to sleep tonight. <laughs> yeah. And use it to your advantage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the thing is that, yeah, it's, like you're saying, you're, you're bringing these things in, but it, it becomes a process to incorporate them and so that it becomes a habit and figuring out how to readjust your schedule, your priorities and all these things in order to be able to do the mindful meditation, to do the yoga, to do the TRE and to do you know, all these different things. But then at the same time, so that all of that doesn't become your life you know, that it all becomes a chore. So you have to kind of find that enjoyment still because you want to live for a reason. And the the living is is to have joy and, and to experience life fully. And uh, so it's, it's kind of finding that that middle ground. And don't let overcoming your stress stress you out because that does for me. Yeah. And speaking to your listeners, like all of the stuff we're talking about sounds it's so difficult and it is. And I think we're all aware of what real life is like. And I'm very, very blessed that I had some time to focus on myself. We didn't have children. We didn't have any pets at the time. Uh, And again, I needed cancer to find this reason to prioritize myself and hopefully others can find even an hour a day to to do something for themselves (laughs) that makes their body happy. Uh, uh, Yeah, that's amazing. So so how did so, so right now you're you're considered no evidence of disease. I'm no active disease. So in Hong Kong they call it no evidence of disease, and I went to my hospital now in Seattle where they call it no active disease. I am stable. So I I actually personally think I had a little recurrence a couple of years ago because I saw my tumor markers go up and I had some swelling. Uh, but I did a six day water fast. Everything resolved itself before we could do a biopsy. So we'll never know. I do really just struggle with some of the survivorship issues that have come about because of my conventional treatment. But again, I'm so lucky. Who gets to have these problems? It's been five years now since my diagnosis. At the time, I was less than 1%. It rounded to zero. Although as of a study last year, it's now up to 4.7% of people who survive with this diagnosis five years. Um, and hopefully that'll just continue to grow and hopefully I can add to the statistics, but always being aware that I could be hit by lightning tomorrow. We, we just don't know. Just enjoy the time that you have. Yeah, exactly. So, so you mentioned you're struggling a little bit with some of the, you know, after effect of the, uh, conventional treatment. So what, what are some of the things that, that you're struggling with, you know, from these type of therapies that you receive? 
oh, you can take this one. It affects you as much as it does me. <laughs> um, well, about uh, it was about a year after I think you got that um, the cl her clean scan. She had a clean PET scan. So like one year after her diagnosis, she had a clean PET scan. A year after that, uh, she had a I don't want to know if it's a massive seizure. How would you describe it? A big seizure? Yeah, actually, I'll like go back further London. than that. So okay. I had a, something that was noticed in my brain and all my doctors told me, this is a recurrence. You have a fifth brain tumor. And I was like, I've had four brain tumors. This, I don't think this is this. I think it's actually brain radiation necrosis. But at the time, not a lot of people who received that treatment lived long enough to develop brain radiation necrosis. It's actually indistinguishable in an MRI from cancer progression, but I went out, we paid out of pocket for a different scan. That's a little bit, gives you a better idea. And it did look like brain radiation necrosis. So yeah, so then I had a seizure. It was actually pretty small. I thought I was having a stroke. We were living in another country. So it was during um, Corona. And I just remember nobody wanted me in the hospital and I got very stressful and I suddenly wasn't able to speak at all. My face was numb. Uh, and we realized it's because of the brain radiation necrosis that had been happening. And at the time, I just had it in one of my previously treated brain tumors, but now all four tumors had gone necrotic. And so that really was something that helped convince my doctors that no, it really is necrosis because it's in the exact same place as all these other uh, tumors you irradiated. But it was still a challenge. We came back to the US, we saw a couple of specialists here who needed extra scans to believe me that it's not tumor progression. And we still, we called it the first three years, got my annual misdiagnosis where they said, you have leptomeningeal disease, <laughs> which if anyone knows what that is, you have a survival untreated of like three to four weeks. Couple weeks. And if yeah. you treat it, it's six to eight weeks. And so I was like, well, I'm going to untreat it and we'll know in a couple of weeks if it really was left adrenaline disease. And I always, of course, was fine. And now eventually my doctors really do uh, have in my chart that it's necrosis. Uh, the that, treatment. Oh, oh, I just like the really scary part was that, uh, you know, they really want they really wanted to treat her with more brain radiation. And that would have been extremely detrimental. Um, it, I mean, have, it probably would have killed her. I'm but, disabled now. I mean, I'm, I have a ton of functionality, but if you look at my brain, I have three millimeter midline shift. Two of the tumors on my left side are just so big. They're even pushing the two tumors on my right side that are super swollen. You mean just swelling, not tumors. Oh, oh sorry. This the lesions, the lesions, yeah. previously yeah. treated tumors. Yeah. Uh, and they yeah. put me on steroids, which are just God awful. And they put me on them without a plan to go off because they're always just thinking I'm going to die imminently. And so after a year of that, I realized I would rather die than continue to take these high dose steroids. But I was able to find a research article on the ability of Boswellia to replace steroids in cerebral edema. So I switched to that and nice herb I'm doing great with. And I still have seizures maybe a couple times a month, but it used to be three to five times a week. And so I continue to heal. And I blame some of that, um, at least stopping the progression of the necrosis, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which I've always felt really strongly about is used in all other kinds of bodily necrosis that's not so much in the brain. And my doctors were like hostily against it. Like they're almost angry at me for wanting to try this. We found a used chamber. We have it at home, modified to 2.0. And it wasn't even a year later that my neuro-oncologist put in my chart said it's probably because of the hyperbaric oxygen therapy <laughs> that my, uh, Necrosis stopped yeah. progressing. But it's just kind of crazy to us that, yeah, I mean, we had to kind of find this stuff out on our own and do it ourselves. Like we were trying to get someone to prescribe the hyperbaric oxygen and they wouldn't prescribe it, right? We were trying to like have a doctor look into the, is this being possibly radiation necrosis and they didn't want to look into it. In fact, even when we went back to that doctor and said like, look, here's the scan we got, it's not cancer. He was like, well, people make mistakes. Yeah, like, I usually work with a bigger team. I yeah, it's like I, you almost killed me, guy. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's just been a, it, like our experience has definitely been frustrating, especially with you know the results that Maggie's getting. Even here in in Seattle, that her her oncologist just is kind of like, well, whatever, just keep doing what you're doing. But he doesn't want to know what she's doing. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't feel like that there's any value that he could share with other patients, and that's that's incredibly frustrating.
but yeah. we don't want to judge any doctors either. They're not at fault. Nobody goes into medicine, not wanting to help people. They're just constrained by the system. And it, that's what's so frustrating. Yeah. A little curiosity is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're seeing you know, 30 patients a day and you don't have time to actually sit down and take advantage of that. Yeah. Curiosity yeah we definitely don't like to throw uh, oncologists under the bus. It's, you know, <laughs> like they are kind of trapped within a system, but, um, there are oncologists that are coming around to this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, it, it is challenging when you're in that position because they, anything that they say, they become liable for. And so if they start talking about hyperbaric and then, you know, a cancer patient has a downturn, you know, which it would have had anyway, uh, then they, they get, you know, whatever's in their chart, you know, it gets investigated. And then all of a sudden, you know, they, everyone point at the hyperbaric when it has nothing to do with the hyperbaric. So, so they, they get very, uh, yeah, they're, they're very adverse. Play it to, safe. Yeah. 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 To say anything that is, is not according to the standard of care model. You know, yeah. So. And the exact same thing with cachexia and a ketogenic diet, right? Like they don't want to suggest that a diet could possibly be helpful because yeah, like you said, the, the, the bad turn was coming anyway. Um, and, and even though the research shows that a ketogenic diet can prevent cachexia yeah. and in one case in an animal model actually reverse it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> so, um, it's a muscle sparing diet. So yeah, when your doctor's like, oh no, you're just going to be cachexic on a ketogenic diet, it's actually beneficial it can be beneficial uh for you know uh, keeping cachexia at bay it's very interesting yeah yeah tell me about that i mean what 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 do you know because a lot of people are concerned in this area yeah do you want to take us from just okay. the anecdote that i was very overweight before my diagnosis i was borderline obese maybe kissing the edge and in the first three months of my new way of eating i lost like 30 pounds overall i lost 50 over 50 but then I found a healthy weight and no amount of fasting I do, no amount of changing my diet will get me below that. My body knows where it wants to be. And so that was amazing. And I actually got a DEXA scan at the uh, Hong Kong University to show that I lost fat. I didn't lose muscle personally. Yeah. Yeah. That's that, There's kind of two um, main points that, you know, when we talk to people, it's like one, the ketogenic diet is muscle sparing. And what cachexia is, is a muscle wasting. So if you're on a ketogenic diet, it's specifically targeting your fat to be used as fuel, not your muscle. Um, if you do go on a fast, there is a, a you know, a chance that you're, you I mean, you use a little bit of muscle, you'll lose a little bit of muscle mass, like when you're just completely fasting and not eating, um, but you're still in that ketogenic state. So, it, uh, um, and then the other thing that we found is because people do get really worried about like how much weight they're losing when they're on a ketogenic diet. And part of that is just like our sort of society's acceptance or idea of what a healthy weight is nowadays. And so we're so used to seeing people that are larger, that when you start to sort of come down to a healthy weight, people just sort of get scared. And they think that they are losing a ton of weight, and they're gone below a healthy weight when in actuality, they probably haven't. So that's kind of a interesting thing that we see really frequently, like we've helped a few people out and like, you know, um, they're just like, I've, I've lost so much weight. I don't want to lose any more weight. And it's like, but, you know, what's your BMI? okay, you can and eat I a little more yeah, cheese if you want a certain percentage of the population. Yeah. But... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Watch your BMI. Yeah. Like what shoot for that, like sort of low twenties, I think is what they tell people. And uh, ultimately I think Brad nailed it with the fear. People are so afraid when they get this diagnosis. And if I can remind people of anything, you don't have to be that urgent. We've been developing cancer for a long time. I know it was my body for years and years before it became so severe. I was diagnosed. Uh, I felt a lot of urgency that got me to do those first radio uh, surgeries. I'm not saying I wouldn't do, especially the first one, but I know now that they did disable me. I just wish I'd had more time to stop and think and do my reading and understand what's out there before feeling rushed into a decision with doctors saying they wouldn't care for you if you didn't make this certain decision and things like that. And it extends to cachexia and I can't lose weight and I can't like just enjoy your time. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's funny as we've been on this journey, we are starting to bump into more and more cancer patients that were just like a stage one or stage two and uh, who have gone through this whole process of using a standard of care. And they are now telling us that like, 
hey, with I only had a stage one or stage two, I really should have tried a metabolic therapy, just trying to diet first before I went on to, uh, you know, the sort of standard of care, because they now have issues sort of similar to Maggie, like they had a heavy radiation dose where they went on chemotherapy. Now they have a lifelong issue from the drug, not from the cancer. Um, so that's kind of interesting. We haven't actually, uh, we haven't got into like the documentary and our YouTube and stuff like that yet, but, um, that's just something that we're thinking about diving into a little bit more is this, cause we mostly talk to stage three and stage four patients. Um, but even early, early stage patients are kind of rethinking this idea of like very quickly being rushed into, um, you know, uh, the, the standard of care. It's kind of interesting. And actually, it might be appropriate just to say, like, one of the things we're doing to combat this fear is creating a YouTube playlist of people's stories, people who have used these therapies in conjunction with the standards of care, or in some cases, not. Uh, many of them are published case studies of people who couldn't use the standard of care, but still found healing just based on their diet, lifestyle, and metabolic changes. And people can find their own cancer in there and see these success stories. It makes you realize it's not as dire as maybe the hospital ward would have you feel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it becomes, you know, you hear the word cancer, so you're diagnosed with cancer and then there's a conveyor belt. I mean, you're, 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 you're kind of put on that conveyor belt and then boom, next therapy, next therapy. And it's, it's like a machine you just get fed into and the people, you know, they're, they're in that state of shock. And, and obviously this is more than they can figure out how to solve. So then they just jump on that conveyor belt because these are the experts, you know, and these yeah. are the ones without kind of slowing down, you know, taking a breath and, and evaluating where am I at? You know, what are my options? Yes, this is the conventional therapy. This is their options that they are presenting, but that's not the only thing that's out there and available. There's so much more. And so, yeah, I, I hear that again and again. I mean, it, it was fascinating even like a stage zero breast cancer, you know, they wanted to do, yeah, exactly. They yeah, cut it out, radiate it and possibly, you know, some chemo. Uh, and I mean, it, it's just fascinating. If, instead of then trying less harmful therapies and, and see how the body's responding to that. Yeah. And not to judge anybody who chooses those therapies, like that's their choice, as long as they know the options, right? And instead of just having chemo, radiation, surgery, and immunotherapy yeah. in some cases presented. I was going to say, you mentioned, we before we started our, our interview, uh, you mentioned Tom Seyfried, and he tries to work with, you know, oncologists to, um, to, to get metabolic therapies introduced. And one of the, one of the things that he that frustrates him the most is this idea of like, well, we have to try the standard of care first and then we can try the metabolic therapies. And he's like, it's just every time I talk to him, like he, he, he seems to bring that point up. He's like, God, if they would just try the metabolic therapies first. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be, and, and he's, yeah, he mentioned this number of times when I was chatting with him is that, uh, the standard of care therapies work so much better when you are in a ketogenic state. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's what people have to remember is it's not either or like this metabolic therapies can help your, in my case, the TKI, the targeted chemotherapy I was on the radiation and not just in the side effects, which are obvious or the improved quality of life, but the actual efficacy allowing a lower dose or shorter treatment, or just being careful about the dose that you're using in case it's a little too much for your ketogenic brain. Yeah. We like this um, anecdote that sort of Walter Longo shares, which is the idea that when you go into like a fasting state or ketogenic state, your, your normal healthy cells kind of go, they kind of get a little shield. They kind of get a little bit protected, but your cancer cells don't do that. They're still trying to like soak up as much of whatever's in the bloodstream as they possibly can. And so that's kind of how this works is that like, so then you enter, you do that, you, that's kind of like the stress or the press as like Seyfried likes to call it. But then you pulse with a, a traditional therapy, like a chemotherapy or radiation, it hits your cancer cells harder because your normal healthy cells are kind of in a little bit of a protected state. So that's how uh, I like to explain it that way. It just really kind of resonates with me. Yeah. Having the explanation helps understand. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, and that's, that's a, a fascinating point that I think, yes, 
um, important for people to understand that, you know, when you are doing the fasting prior to, you know, then, then you have the, the healthy cells are more like you're saying, they, you know, the chemo, the radiation will not impact the healthy cells as much uh, in a negative way. Uh, and the, the cancer cells, in fact, in that state becomes even more vulnerable because they open up themselves even more for something. And uh, so they they are impacted by the oxidative therapies even more. And that's the same with regular traditional oncology as with vitamin C and artisanate IV and all those different things as well. Um, Tell me, I I see the poster behind you, Cancer Revolution. Uh, Tell me a little bit about that project. Yeah, take this one. So all this stuff that we've been talking about, right? These therapies that your doctor isn't telling you about, right? Maggie found them by reading books and articles on PubMed, um, maybe emailing a few doctors, right? It's difficult to find this information. Also, we were uh, think about like if you're a cancer patient or even a caregiver where you're not from a scientific background, makes it you know like an even another level that makes it difficult to sort of find this information, digest it. And so Maggie wanted to share this information that had, you know, impacted her life so greatly. And so for a little while, actually, she was a a cancer coach, tried to, you know, work one-on-one with people. And there was just the, it was sort of a combination of how difficult that was and just how few people she was helping. And so we were like, let's like brainstorm and think bigger. And we were like, why don't we think about making a documentary? Um, which has turned into a docu-series, a four-part, one hour each, so a four-hour docu-series. And yeah, we went and talked to Travis Christofferson and Tom Seyfried, and we were like, hey, we think... And at that point, we had kind of met them a couple of times. They said yes, uh, really kind of took a chance on us, because it's not exactly... I, I did used to work in the entertainment industry, but it's not exactly documentaries, or it's not exactly where we came from. But they said yes, and we uh, onboarded several other like fantastic people. Um, Sam Apple, who wrote an, a biography on Otto Warburg. So the f- whole first episode is all about Otto Warburg and his uh, the Warburg effect, um, and then sort of how his theory fell out of favor, mostly because of you know genetics was sort of new and fresh on the scene, um, and then also some political reasons. So anyway, so the main idea though is just like get this information out there in a way that's easy to digest that cancer patients can understand kind of just sit on their couch and just have it like you know like wash over them or and watch it again if you want to you know so uh so that's where it came from and uh yeah so it's still a work in progress the first episode is complete it's been doing amazing in festivals and awards uh circuit uh, if you're looking for information you can find it at cancerrevolution.film and cancer revolutions but with one r dot film because uh, it could be an evolution or a revolution. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we do have the best way to sort of follow uh, us as, our, as far as like the release dates and stuff is there's just a little newsletter that um, we put out about monthly. And, you know, we just like where you can find it or where you can see us. We do. We, we've done a few uh, conventions, you know, speak at conventions. Um, so, you know, just trying to or conferences, I should say, not conventions. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. we're always a presence so. out there on the YouTube channel, on socials, and just here to help people who are looking for more answers and to support people like you, like all these incredible yeah. researchers that are getting the information out there. And if I looked back when I was diagnosed, even just five years ago, this was all so new. It had been around for less than well, about five years. And since then, now we have conferences dedicated to this uh, physicians are learning about it so it's coming it's we're riding the wave and i just want everybody to think know that that this hope is here it's not waiting for it to be developed it's here and you can use it now if you're interested and one of the ways that i gauge that is that pharmaceutical companies are starting to plow money into metabolic therapies so that is i like to say um pharmaceutical companies don't gamble so the fact that there's so much money from the pharmaceutical industries being plowed into this, that kind of that kind of tips me off a little bit that this is this is uh, at least promising. I was going to say real, but let's just say promising. <laughs> <laughs> Pfizer gets twenty five thousand dollars a month from Medicare for my traditional treatments. And I just look at fasting and it costs me less than nothing. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, yeah. It's amazing. Well, you guys are warriors. 
Thank you. I mean, your your story, Maggie, is is just incredible. I mean that that is that is amazing, and and this is exactly what people need to recognize that there's there's hope. You know, and and like what you're saying, that the two big factors, you know, how you're eating and how you're thinking, your your you know attitude, your uh, how you work with your stress and how your life is different now, and uh, that that is those are two foundational components in able in order to be able to to beat cancer and, and it's, it's really important for people to understand yeah without that we can take the the best supplements we can do the best therapies we can do uh, and it will just kind of fall on dry ground you know it, it really won't grow yeah. And I'm not special. I am one of so many people out there who are just less loud and obnoxious. And it's thanks to practitioners like you supporting people that it's the numbers are only going to grow. So thank you. Yeah, love it. Well, thank you so much, both. Yeah, any last words that you want to kind of say to the people out there that that are battling? I, I, I said mine. Um, I'll just say quickly, if you want to find us, our YouTube is Cancer Revolution Doc D O C, um, and we have. I think we have over 25 um, interviews up there with people that have used metabolic therapies, some with uh, conventional treatment, some without, and you can hear it basically straight from people that have gone through these diagnosis of mostly stage three and stage four, um, which that's usually for someone that's dealing with a cancer diagnosis where we send people first so they can just hear it directly from a cancer patient. And then, uh, I think the last oh, thing I was... I do have one. Yeah. We were talking about doctors having this authority that will do whatever they say. You, the listener, are the authority on your body and your health. And yes, listen to your beautiful doctor's experience and their knowledge, but you make the decision. You're the boss. <laughs> yeah, be your own advocate. Yeah, yeah, that that's huge. And, and research shown again and again that the individual that takes charge of their own health and, and set their own course they always have a better outcome. So uh, yeah, that that's huge. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This, this was amazing. I truly appreciate all the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> thank thank you. you so much for having us. Thanks. The information this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not designed to diagnose or treat any disease. If you'd like to know more about what my center offers, please visit thecarlfeldcenter.com. Please join us next week for another live consultation with a patient diagnosed with cancer on Integrative Cancer Solutions with Dr. Carl Feldt.